Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my Times Radio show, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. Although, I should let you know that I'm not here next week. I'm having a week off to go and stand at the bottom of the garden. So, uh, brilliant Luke Jones will be in the hot seat all next week. Luke normally co-presents Times Radio Weekend Breakfast, uh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday with Jenny Cleveland. But yeah, he'll be in the hot seat all next week, so be nice to him. Anyway, we round off uh, this week with a lovely show, actually. Coming up, it was uh, International Women and Girls in Science Day. So we thought we'd mark that just by speaking to... Well, some very cool female scientists. Really, really nice chat coming up, including someone who's held a bit of Mars rock in their hands and broken it in half. Really good. Lovely chat coming up. First, though, the columnist panel. It's Thursday, so it must be Webb Cram. That's Esther Webber and Robert Crampton. Let's start with the, uh, the tricky issue of uh, overhauling the NHS. You can tell that the, uh, the, the Tory party's been through several iterations now because there aren't many of them left who were there the last time round when they did this in 2012 and uh, vow everyone involved vowed never to do it again. It's the Lansley reforms uh, back then. But now Matt Hancock announced today another overhaul of the way the NHS is organised in England. Promises to cut down on bureaucracy, better joined up health and social care services. Have we heard all this before, Esther? Um, in my case, yes. Um, I'm <laughs> almost getting kind of post-traumatic symptoms because um, when I was covering Parliament um, exclusively, I remember covering the whole of the Landscape Act through Parliament, which... Um, introduced the clinical commissioning groups and I can't believe they're, they're starting it all over again less than 10 years later um, so but I think there was a sense that the Lansley reforms were criticised from quite an early stage and there is the the government needs to do something on the NHS because it is going to need a hell of a lot of support coming out of the pandemic. So I think I think it's not a sort of unworthy aim and potentially if the legislation takes as long as the last one, then hopefully we'll be out of the immediate crisis by then. <laughs> 
Well, but does this feel like the right time uh, when your house is on fire? Is it the mm. right time to start redecorating the lounge? You do wonder a bit why how NHS civil servants are finding the time to prepare a white paper and for Matt Hancock to go to to, to have his input and everything when you'd think they'd be busy with other stuff. Uh, I don't know whether it's the right time or not. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's it feels... There has never been uh, a white paper, I don't think, which doesn't promise to cut down on red tape and, and have more joined up <laughs> government, has there? I mean... It'd be fantastic to introduce one which which promised more bureaucracy. Uh, no, it doesn't feel quite the right time for me. It must be pretty demoralising, I would have thought, if you were in the NHS at the moment. They've done, they've done, they've done pretty well in different, incredibly difficult circumstances, uh, often lacking, in the early days, lacking a lot of kits that they needed to be told that they're going to be reformed again less than a decade uh, after the last one. So, no, it doesn't feel like quite the right time to me. I suspect the government is, knows that in the aftermath of all this, the, the big scandal is going to be the uh, what happened with care homes. Uh, and they're trying to maybe get out in front of that by saying, well, look, we've, we've got all that in hand. We're, we're making these reforms. We're going to integrate it. It's all going to be perfect in the future because they know that that's, that's where... Yes, they... yeah. So they have an answer to that question when it gets asked. They can say, well, yes, you know, we, say, we know they that. With, yeah. they, they at least say it's all in hand, you know. And the other thing that's... Because I really remember the, the, the Andrew Lousy reforms when they happened at the time, Esther. There was this big thing about sort of taking the politics out of it and the health secretary wouldn't be responsible for the day-to-day running of the yeah. NHS. So Simon Stevens, as the head of NHS England, became a sort of much more powerful figure. Uh, but as we've discovered in the past 12 months... Matt Hancock is still very much held accountable for what the NHS does. And um, uh, uh, and we really didn't see very much of Simon Stevens at all during this crisis, actually, until, um, you know, the vaccine rollouts started going very well. And he was very keen to come and tell us that, you know, he was very much responsible for that. And yeah. so you can't take politics out of the running of the NHS any more than you can of, you know, the, the levels of benefits or, you know, yeah. whether or not the trains run on time. Exactly, and I think um, I think possibly what's happened is that um, the conservative relationship has changed with the whole Department of Health, not just with uh, kind of um, kind of embracing NHS under Cameron. But I think under Andrew Lansley, it was still seen as quite a difficult brief for a Conservative minister, and uh, he was sort of really resented for a lot of the changes he pushed through. And I think there was a step change under Jeremy Hunt, who also had a pretty torrid time, towards the beginning at least, um, but he sort of gained some grudging respect, I think, for staying in that job as long as he did. And I think there's a similar thing with Matt Hancock. In uh, he obviously has his critics, and there are big questions that are going to be asked in the wake of all this. But I think he's sort of gained some credit for um, for the job he's done over the course of the past year. Yeah. And I think it's it's more now about kind of making the NHS resilient rather yeah. than any kind of 
completely mad claim to to take the politics out of health. And I suppose it's one of those things that the the, the, the the Labour Party always gets credited as being the best party for the NHS. Although, interestingly, I was just looking at the YouGov. There was a brief blip in March last year. I suppose that's that's when Jeremy Corbyn was still technically leader at the height yes, of the yeah. pandemic, when actually the Tories yeah. overtook the Labour Party as the best of the NHS. But there's probably not a lot of um, gain for the Tory party on the NHS, but they could, if they, if they do muck it up, then there's a lot of downside for them, Robert. Indeed, yeah. I mean, that, I, as well as, as saying that you're going to have less red tape and join things up, the other thing they always say is it's going to take the politics out of X. And you're the funding body, you're the government. You can't, that, that's where the politics is. And uh, many of the problems that the NHS uh, has are not to do with red tape or management or particular commissioning bodies. It's to do with funding and lack of funding. I mean, the particular problem at the moment is it's staff shortages, I think, which is being and will be exacerbated by Brexit. And it's tempting to say that if you pay uh, nurses and doctors, well, I'm not necessarily doctors, but nurses uh, more, you would overcome the biggest problem, which is a shortage of staff. And that yeah. is political. Yeah, yeah. That's deeply political. That's political, and it requires money, and, you know, not paying yeah. bursaries and all that sort of stuff. And also, yeah. crucially, uh, it's, it, it's it's a more long-term thing. You know, you, you need to agree to put money in, and then you need to recruit them, and then you need to train them. And it's a while before you see the the numbers the numbers change. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Let's move on and talk about an equally tricky issue. What do you do about anti-vaxxers on social media? Uh, Priti Patel's been speaking to the uh, the Times, uh, to Matt Dathan, the Home Affairs editor, saying that uh, she's uh, telling Facebook, Twitter and Google they have a social responsibility to remove false anti-vaccination posts. Uh, she said that social media companies were to blame for the low uptake of coronavirus vaccines, particularly among ethnic minorities compared with the general population. I mean, is it right for the government to go around telling companies that they have a social responsibility? They are businesses, ultimately. Is that, is that going to work, Robert? Yes, it's entirely right for the government to say that. Uh, whether it will work or not, I don't know. But this, it's a very young industry, uh, social media, and it's going to eventually have to be regulated properly. Uh, the degree of self-regulation will have to come in, but I think... Far be it from me to agree with Priti Patel, but I think she's entirely correct. Uh, I think we need to start treating Facebook, Instagram and the rest as publishers, just in the way that we're in the Times. We're not allowed to publish things which aren't true. Then neither they shouldn't be allowed to do so either. So, yes, they should take them down. What do you think, Esther? Is this, is this ultimately, rather than just saying you have a moral responsibility, does this require government regulation of social media? Um, I th- I think um, it's it's right to kind of to point to the publisher's responsibility and to say you know you're not some kind of neutral um, space on this, but I think it is also only tackling part of the problem, which is that um, a lot of this misinformation that I've heard about from friends um has all come from whatsapp so it's being forwarded by um by people who may not know the original source and it wasn't posted kind of on 
Facebook or uh, or Twitter or somewhere where you could link to, and um and I think therefore the kind of other side of the equation needs to be something very kind of WhatsApp focused, maybe some sort of ad campaign saying you know don't believe everything that's forwarded to you, and I think I think that is something that hasn't really been discussed. That's a really interesting point. And actually, I suppose there's one thing of like telling uh, social media companies, do this, do that. But the government mounting a proper sort of these are the facts type thing. And you're right with things which can easily be shared, uh, mm. you know, whether that is in WhatsApp, you know, actually, you know, like the El- I know it's a sort of slightly different thing. But the Elton John advert clearly went viral yesterday in a way that a video of Matt Hancock doesn't unless he's trying to pretend that he's crying or whatever. Mm. Yeah, we haven't we haven't seen that sort of big public information effort. I've been surprised that they haven't done more. There's been a bit of it, but uh, the sort of thing that we saw with the AIDS, AIDS crisis during the eighties hasn't hasn't really been one that's cut through, has there? Uh, in terms of saying this is this is the situation, this is what people need to do. There's still that seems to be there's still that kind of slightly maybe libertarian influence reluctance on the, the part of the government to actually sort of say to people, go and get a vaccine. Uh, and this is why you need to do it. They sort of slightly recoil from that. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it's a, yeah, it's sort of if if you've got sort of punchy, in, incorrect stuff going viral, it feels like you need some punchy, correct stuff you, you, to yes, uh, quite, to counter it. Um, let's just uh, finally um, talk about dogs and photos of dogs. Yeah. And should should are you are you happy, uh, Robert, to be paying for the prime minister to have photos taken of his dog? Not really, no. Three seems three <laughs> photographers. Three photographers seems quite excessive. I mean, it's a nice picture. We all like to see a nice. I think, as as Esther said in the red box uh, email this morning, uh, it's we all like to see a nice picture of a nice dog, or especially in the snow or whatever. But no, three three sounds a bit excessive. It sounds that sounds a bit kind of uh, 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 yeah extravagant. <laughs> Maybe one's it's enough. Le- also, the, the serious point is that uh, the, the proper, the proper press, the proper photographers get excluded from uh, from coverage. You know, uh, so you just get given handouts. Yes, uh, and that, you know, here's and that's, pic- that's the crucial thing, isn't it, Esther? Is mm. that uh, in the past when the prime minister went on a visit or was even, you know, maybe speaking to. Uh, world leaders on the phone or whatever it might be, an actual, you know, press photo, a journalistic press photographer would go and take the photos so you could see if he had his head in his hands or if a member of the public confronted him or whatever it might be. And instead, we're getting these slightly, I saw somebody in the Times today, likely in sort of North Korea, these slightly sort of handout photo, you know, it's it's not quite, thankfully, uh, uh, puted on the, bare-chested on the back of a horse, but it's not far (laughs) off. God forbid. Yeah, the sort of <laughs> the sort of Boris Johnson triumphant photos that we get from inside number ten now and then. Yeah, it's um, it's a it's a little bit queasy. I mean, I suppose you can't blame his photographer for trying to show him in a good light, but um, yeah, I'm not sure we need one for the cat and one for the dog. <laughs> 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 the also, uh, the de- the detail I loved um, today was that uh, they had to take down some of the ones of Dylan the dog because it had got uh, Carrie Simon's mobile number on his uh, collar. 
Um, yeah, yeah. So obviously, yeah. The, if the dog got lost, you'd have to ring the number. And uh, yeah, they accidentally posted the, the, the number on Flickr. Uh, so, yeah, they've had to take those down. I mean, to be honest, we've all spent uh, the last few weeks t- spending much too time taking much too much time taking photos of the dog in the snow. So I suppose it's inevitable. But, yeah, whether or not that is a uh, full time, you know, taxpayer funded job is a slightly separate point. Well, th- thank you very much. I enjoyed your suggestions about uh, bone secretary, secretary of state yeah. for mousing. Uh, communities and local. They're all very good. Have you, have you got any dog animal cabinet puns to share with us, Robert? I tried. I, I wrote a leader this morning in the Times about the the cat filter guy in Texas, and I used up all my animal puns on that. I think. Uh, <laughs> but the whole no, thing, the lawyer the lawyer who accidentally turned on yeah, the cat filter right, while yeah, he did, so yeah. read, read that. That was me, and there's there's a good few in there. But no, the whole thing's barking mad. Hey, there <laughs> we go. There we go. <laughs> Esther Webber and Robert Crampton, then, of course, you can read them both in The Times. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box to get a Times subscription. Up next, just very cool female scientists. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com I'm Matt Trotty. This is Times Radio. Let's talk about science. Science has got all cool, hasn't it, in the past uh, 12 months. Forget the politics of the pandemic. We can all agree scientists are going to get out of it. And we've all become armchair scientists these days, uh, throwing around terms about efficacy, antibodies, viral load, the R-rate. My wife in particular has become obsessed with the temperature that vaccines have to be kept in various fridges. We've all become science experts. Well, today marks the International Day of Women and Girls in Science. So we thought let's celebrate a bit of that because 
has been quite male-dominated, um, the, the science uh, debate uh, in the past 12 months. So we thought we'd speak to some of the UK's top female scientists. We're also going to hear from the Minister for Science, uh, Amanda Soloway. Uh, that's coming up. First, let's speak to Pale Jane, who's an analytics expert and chair of Women in Data. Uh, morning, Pale. Hi, how are you doing? I'm very good. I'm very good. So first of all, give us, because I've sort of slightly, get, what, what is your full job title? So um, I've got multiple roles in the world. but That's um, what we want. That's what we want. The <laughs> longest, most impressive, coolest sounding job title is what I want. Exactly. But I, um, so one, one of my roles is chair of an organisation called Women in Data. Um, and Women in Data is all around encouraging young girls as well as um, you know, females in the industry today to uh, either enter or progress their careers in the industry and our ambition and vision is gender parity across all roles, you know, from the board table all the way down to people coming into the industry. Um, but right now, um, it, the, the stats are pretty scary. So um, for every four men that are entering the industry, only 0.68 of them are women. So we definitely have a long way to go to kind of sort that out. But then a part of my other role in the world is um, I'm a managing director at a company called J-Curve. And we focus on helping organisations um, increase their agility. And a big part of that is actually in how they're leveraging um, data and data sciences to solve some of the company's challenges and how they create more value for their customers. So um, it's super interesting to kind of, you know, have that breadth across the industry in different sectors um, to, to help these organisations kind of leverage their data in better ways. And I suppose it, people might not always think of data as being a sort of branch of uh, science, but just explain what what that means you're doing. Um, what are you? What are the problems that you're solving? How are you? What what does a sort of a day look like for you? What 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 does data science look like for people who don't know? Yeah, I mean, you know, when I when I grew up, data science as a term didn't exist. But actually, if we think about what we do as human beings every single day, you know, we're generating data whether we go shopping in store, online, you know, using apps, everything we're doing is, is creating a mark somewhere in terms of our activity. And so what a data scientist does, and I've been doing this, you know, for the last 20 years, is thinking about, you know, how do we collect that data? How do we store it? But then most importantly, how do we analyze it um, to gain insight? And this is to help make better decisions for, you know, organizations, for customers, you know, thinking about the pandemic, how you know there's you know we're, we're bombarded with so much data at the moment it's how we use that to generate value that's going to um benefit the end customer okay but this morning i was talking to well, my uh, uh, daughter jessica is obviously homeschooling right now she's i think she's deep into doing some math but i was talking to her about the fact we had you coming on today and we were going to be talking about science so she has recorded a question for uh, for all of our guests this morning so let's take a listen what's the coolest thing you've done in your job that's what she wanted to know. Basically, what is the coolest thing that you've done in your job? Oh, that's that's a brilliant question. I love that. Um, I think, you know, some some of it has been really cool just over the last 12 months. So, um, you know, we've been working with um, Sainsbury's as an organisation and their data science um, function. But it's just phenomenal to hear the stories of what's been created in helping through people through the pandemic of using data to create um, insight into whose vulnerable customers couldn't get into a store or get a home delivery and proactively doing that and then listening to the customer feedback. 
you know, when I was hearing about that, it just literally gave me goose pimples. Um, you know, working with Mencap is, is another one of our clients. But again, through data, we've helped um, improve the productivity of people that can get um, support in their, their um, learning, uh, you know, as they've got dif um, disabilities. And so, again, it, what I love about data is that you can solve the world's biggest problems through the insights data. And that has to be so cool. That, yeah, exactly. I suppose that's the thing, isn't it? Is the, is the outcome. You, you take all this information, you crunch it, and then something cool comes out of it afterwards. Just on, that, on this um, research you've got out today, which, which shows that girls are still fa facing barriers to science, you said, was it four, maybe four men who go into it? Is it naught point? What was the figure? Six, eight. Yeah, 0 0 0 0 0 0.68 women. And is that across yeah. all science? Or are there some areas of science which are more male-dominated than others? Yeah, I mean, I, I think we've looked at it as a as an industry as a whole um, in terms of who's entering. And, you know, like I said, it, it, you know, in our lifetime at the moment, we're never going to get to gender parity as we look at it. And, you know, as part of um, Women in Data, we then started to break it down to say, you know, what is... What are some of the challenges that girls are facing? Um, you know, versus boys to um, deter them from entering the industry. And so we partnered with an organisation called Truthsayers that use neuroscience technology to help create those insights. And what it gives you is that it's not just what we think is right and, and, um, and yeah, what we say, but it's actually how do you truly feel? Um, and again, we're humans. It's really complex to understand what we're feeling inside versus what we think. And there were some really, really interesting things. So the good news is that um, girls actually that the sciences and you know other STEM subjects are really important to land their dream job. So 49% of girls kind of see that versus 33% for boys. So it's really, really positive. However, um, one of the, the kind of findings from this research is that girls don't see... Um, kind of the sciences and the STEM subjects as compelling as boys to study. And this is mainly because they don't see it as social and collaborative. So 43% of girls are saying that, you know, it is social and collaborative, whereas 71% of boys. And so it's this perception that we really, really need to change to help start solving this problem and getting more girls to come into the industry. And so if, if there are girls listening to this, I think Jessica is listening to it downstairs, what, how, make the case for going into to science or data science in particular. You know, you know I think, um, like I said, you can solve the world's biggest problems through it. And, you know, we've seen it more so than ever during this pandemic. But, it, you know, you can, you can think big and be creative in, in these roles. Um, you know, thinking about climate change. You know, why can't um, you use data to help solve some of these problems? So I think, you know, whatever problem you're looking at, whether it's how quickly can I get my pizza delivered to, you know, thinking about climate change, all of these are possible um, by having a career in data science. And, you know, what we've also found is there's a lot of peer pressure for girls um, thinking about, you know, which choice of subjects they take. Um, again, you know, just putting some stats around this, 50% of girls say that they feel that peer pressure versus 35% for boys. But again, it's thinking about, you know, what you want to do. Um, it is social. It is collaborative. You can solve some really cool problems. And we'll hear some more about that, you know, from, um, you know, the other speakers later on. But yeah, um, the world is your oyster. You've got to think big because um, this is an industry that is going to continue to 
be the heart of um, how the world spins going forward. That's a good sales pitch. That is a good sales pitch. Well, you're absolutely right. Let's let's um, go on to speak to a thank you very much, Chair Pale Jen. There's an analytics expert and chair of Women in Data. Let's now speak to Professor Monica Grady, a planetary scientist at the Open University. Hi, Monica. Hiya. Hi. That was uh, really interesting listening to your previous speaker. <laughs> it's just oh, like yes. wow. <laughs> Exactly. But, but it's, it's, you know, science is such a, an enormous, broad thing. So we're going from uh, you know, number crunching and data to now what is a planetary scientist? Right. Well, a planetary scientist is somebody who studies planets um, and we study how uh, the solar system was made, how Earth, Mars, Jupiter was made. And we look at how um, planets beyond our own solar system are made. So, you know, there are billions of stars out there and billions of planets surrounding them. And some of them are going to be like the Earth. So this is the sort of thing that we study, our own origins and the origins of life elsewhere. And how do you become a planetary scientist? Um, Well, basically... uh, You can be a planetary scientist if you're interested in astronomy, if you're interested in earth sciences or chemistry or physics or or mathematics. Uh, Planetary sciences is a really, really broad subject and um, is is, is very, um, you know, very collaborative. People of all sorts of different backgrounds get together to to discuss these problems because one of the things that we uh, like to do is we like to have space missions to send um, missions to mars and to the moon and so on and so we need engineers to to help us with that as well and then another thing can i say something else yeah of course yeah yeah the next generation or the coming generation of telescopes that we have um, and things like um, the Large Hadron Collider at CERN, they produce so much data, so much data, we can't deal with it. So we have to have our specialist data analysts to help Ah, deal with the data. And then what it all joins up, because then once we have these things called data products, you can use them for other things. So like, the Large Hadron Collider in CERN, which discovered the Higgs boson, they have specialist um, software which tracks particles going around their, you know, electrons and things going around their instruments. And the same software is used by London Transport to track the movement of people in tube stations for looking at how you can do emergency evacuations if there's, you know, a hazard. So it's like, It's taking what we do and then finding something else interesting and fascinating to do. That's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's good. And then, yeah, that's so. But that taking one bit of tech and you know, uh, and then turning it and using it for other reasons is very, very cool. Well, I need to ask you. Well, we need to get uh, your answer to Jessica's question. Let's take a listen. What's the coolest thing you've done in your job? Yeah. (laughs) Right. Well, the coolest thing I've done in my job is I have held in my hand a piece of rock from the surface of Mars and I've carefully broken it in half and looked at the inside of a bit of a rock from Mars. And that, that was is very fairly cool. cool. <laughs> How do you do that? Do you have to wear gloves? Is oh, it dangerous to hold a yes. bit of Mars? No, it's not dangerous to hold at all. I mean, these the, these bits of Mars, nobody has been to Mars and brought a sample back, although we're hoping that there'll be some robots bringing it back soon. But these are rocks that have been 
bounced off the surface of Mars, you know, an asteroid's come in, it's made a crater on Mars and it's blasted rocks off that have landed on Earth and come from Mars. And and so you hold them, actually, you know, I said in my hand, I was holding them, my hands got gloves on and I was handing it with a pair of tweezers um, because, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to get anything on it to contaminate it. You know, we're not worried about it yeah, contaminating course. us, but yeah. That is pretty cool. Though. And obviously there's lots of Mars excitement at the moment, isn't there? Because not one, not two, but three um, uh, probes heading towards Mars. Um, how exciting is that for you right now? Oh, it's really exciting. I mean, two have arrived already, one from uh, the United Arab Emirates and one from China, which is fantastic. The one I'm really interested in is the one that's coming, uh, uh, the NASA mission, which is arriving on the 18th. Because what that's going to do is that is going to put a probe on, on Mars, a, a, a rover called Perseverance. And that's going to drill some rocks and put them in tubes uh, and make a, a little pile of them. And then another mission is going to launch in 2026 and is going to go and collect that little pile of rocks and bring it back to Earth in 2032. So what we need now are um, girls, young women, uh, who will be ready to be scientists analysing those rocks in 2032 because I'll be retired by then. <laughs> what a brilliant thing to end for. I was just sort of doing the maths on that because that's what, what, 10, 11 years away. Yeah, 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 yeah. My daughter Jessica's 11, so that's sort of about what she could She'll be. She'll be you know, perfect. Just She'll be perfect. Absolutely perfect, yeah. This is good. This is a good like. This is why you need to do your science now, because uh, uh, one day you yeah. could be analysing the rocks which have come back from Mars. What What do you think would persuade more young girls and women to go into uh, your particular field of science? I think if they realised how creative you have to be to do these uh, to do these subjects. I mean, people think of science as being dry and perhaps a bit boring and. And, and sort of mechanical, really. Oh, you're solving equations. Oh, you're doing this. And the other. It's not. You've got to be really creative. You've got to have ideas. You've got to be able to be thinking around those problems. Because, you know, if you don't think around the problems, then you're not going to be able to solve them. So it's all problem solving in a different way. You know, it, it's... It, and it's creative. It's, you know, people think of, um, you know, musicians and, and artists and, and sculptors and so on as being as, as being creative. But you've got to be creative to be a scientist. That's really, really important. You've got to be able to talk to people. You've got to be able to discuss things and and, and really sort of communicate. And, and that's really important. And I don't think enough people understand that. Yeah, it could sometimes feel like a choice between science or the arts and one's creative and one isn't, but it's not. It's also very exciting, Monica, because we've actually got a clip of you. I think this is your reaction to oh a, probe, <laughs> a, a probe landing on a comet. Let's take a listen. I mean, if that doesn't convince you that science could be exciting, <laughs> nothing will. What was, just before I let you go, Monica, what was that probe? What was the comet? That was um, a, a probe called Philae, which was part of the Rosetta mission to a comet, and that was from 2014. So, yes, yeah. But, but imagine, 
you know, imagine you're a scientist and you're working on a vaccine for the, the pandemic. You know, just think how much joy you must be feeling now when you when you hear about oh yeah 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 you know we'll soon be able to go on holiday again because of those wonderful and, you'll, and you'll be able to hug people when things land <laughs> on comics again exactly again. Yeah. that's what we want yeah. that's what we want yeah, yeah. oh monica it's been lovely to speak to you i'd like i think we should, we'll, we'll we'll have you back again the next time we do science stuff because it's it's just your your enthusiasm is, is infectious that's monica professor monica grady is a planetary scientist at the Open University, a comp another completely different uh, uh, strand of science now. Professor Lorna Dawson is the head of Soil Forensics Group at the James Hutton Institute. Morning, Lorna. Good morning, Matt. So explain your field of science. Your, what, is your, what is your full job title and uh, what do you do all day? Well, every day is different um, in my job, and um, I've got a very—I'm very fortunate with the job that I do. Um, I've, I've got several roles. Uh, so one is to uh, lead the team here at the James Hutton Institute, and the work that we do, working across the criminal justice system, using natural products, natural um, soil. Uh, botany, all that type of information to help both the police in uh, search and also um, as evidence in court. But the other side to my job is that fundamentally I am a soil scientist, but applying that science within the context of the criminal justice system. So firmly believe that um, it's the F word that's added to the fundamental subject of science, but there are many, many sciences that are relevant and indeed um, used within uh, the, the policing and the court system. And what brought you into it? What, what made you focus on becoming a forensic scientist? What, what, what really triggered it was um, someone turned up at the door, one of the local um, police officers, and said, we've got a spade here. Um, we're looking for some buried drugs. Can you help us work out where that soil might have come from? So um, then I approached the National Crime Agency, it is now, and uh, uh, we put together a grant and we got funded by EPSRC to test uh, this approach to um, bring soil and uh, ecological sciences to the same uh, level of sophistication and accreditation such that it could be used uh, safely within uh, the court system. And is it why there was a there was a, 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 um, a murder case that you managed to solve, and it, it, it happened when you were at university, and then you helped solve it some some many years later. Yes, that 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 that, that case, um, they all are significant, but but that one um, really um, impacted upon me because um, not only was I studying um, in Edinburgh University. Um, I was I was also living there and I was part of that community that was living with the terror of not knowing um, how these two unfortunate young girls had had come to, to, to their fate. Um, and so, so many years later, um, I was asked if, you know, was there anything we could do in terms of the soil science? And of course, it had developed. We heard from previous speakers the importance of scientific research because that is going on in the background um, so that new methods are coming on stream. They have to be tested. They have to be researched. They have to be peer reviewed. Um, but 
then the meanwhile, from the, the, the late 1970s to um, the early 2000s, um, a lot of advancement had taken place. And then in, in, in 2006, I got this grant. So we were formally able to test these methods so that they could be used in, in, in a criminal case. And indeed, yes, that the, the soil was a crucial part in it was the first double jeopardy case that was heard in Scotland. And it was one of the two vital pieces of new evidence that ultimately led to uh, the conviction of Angus Sinclair for the horrendous murders of Helen Scott and Christy Needy in Edinburgh. What an incredible, what an incredible story. I suspect that might be the answer to Jessica's question, but let's hear Jessica's question anyway. <laughs> What's the coolest thing you've done in your job? Yeah, so that's my daughter, Jessica, asking that question this morning. Is that the coolest thing you've done in your job, or maybe there's something else? Thank you, Jessica. Love your name. It's a super name, Jessica. And thank you very much <laughs> for reading that question out so well. I think you're going to be a future presenter anyway. Um, She's welcome to it. I, yeah. Um, <laughs> but you've got to consider doing science as well, Jessica. You know, it's a, it's a really cool subject to do. And as I said, there are multiple sciences within that that, that, that whole discipline. Um, I, I don't know. It was difficult, really. A great question. There's several things, I guess. One is that um, in, in, in my humble career, I've I've actually got to meet the Queen. Um, and uh, thinking of when you were young and, and, and now I'm, I, I'm, I'm firmly in the middle of a career, um, um, I, I idolised Rod Stewart. Now, I'm sure, Jessica, you'll idolise other singers now. But... Um, <laughs> I, I also, in my, in my career, was fortunate enough to actually sit and chat with him over a dinner one night. So, you know, you do get these cool things. But in terms of really cool was um, I was working in France with a gendarmerie um, because that's the other thing. Science takes you internationally. It, 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 it's, it's a language that's spoken by everyone everywhere, science. And, and I, so I was working out there and I got a motorcycle um, cavalcade to take me from the airport to the centre of Paris. So that was really cool. Um, that's pretty being good. Being blue-lighted in France. <laughs> <laughs> and I suppose that's the thing. It's, it's something that maybe people have really come to realise in the last year, in the international collaboration, whether it's vaccines developed in one country and tested in another and rolled out and produced in another. That You're right, that's really interesting that science is a language spoken around the world. And we see it in, you know, we talked about space earlier, international collaboration, you know, it, often between countries in any other situation, they'd be at loggerheads. But actually, oh, science does people bring, bring people together. And, and the COVID pandemic has just been an example where we have seen international collaboration, cooperation. It's vitally important that we do that. And, and I think in any discipline, we, we also communicate that science and integrate that science across other disciplines. And, and forensic science is a good example of that because you know we have to work within different legal frameworks all over the world. Um, so we have to learn to speak the language of the courts as well as speaking, being able to yeah. make our sciences understood by the layperson. So in our country, we've got um, the adversarial system. So we, it's ultimately the jury that decides on someone's guilt or not. It's really, really, really fascinating. Professor Laura Dawson, head of the Soil Forensics Group at the James Hutton Institute. Uh, thanks so much for talking to us. We can now just quickly speak to Amanda Soloway, who is the Minister for Science uh, in the Hello. government. Uh, mo Hi, Amanda. Um, what, what can the government do? To, we were just discussing the figures that show that it's still uh, far more uh, men than women go into science. What, what can the government do to encourage more girls into science? 
Well, well, I guess one of the, the, the first things we could do is listening to the amazing Monica and other guests on programmes like this and just say to people, please, please, please consider all of these these uh, careers. And there are things, as you know, like apprenticeships available. We also have, um, we're, we're having um, ambassadors, STEM ambassadors. Uh, but the biggest thing for me is really instilling that passion and listening to all these amazing, amazing scientists saying that you can have a career in, in this fantastic field. Uh, and are there specific things that you can uh, do that, or that the government is trying to do to try and shift these these numbers? Is there particular schemes and that sort of thing? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that, that I'm really looking at is um, looking at the people and culture strategy. So we had a roadmap which identifies all the things that we need to do for the future. And within that, we're really focusing on how we can get more, more diversity in, into the science community. And a lot of it for me is around instilling confidence and it's around getting out and telling those stories. And of course, it starts at at all, at all age groups, which is why uh, one of the things we're, we're doing is having the, the STEM ambassadors. I think there's 30,000 volunteers. So we're going out into schools and saying, you know, really, really encouraging um, young people to get involved and, and follow their, their dreams as well. Uh, and we were talking about, obviously, you know, in the last year, year, science has become something we all talk about. It's all become very yeah. cool. It has been quite male. You know, with Chris Whitty and Jonathan Van Tam and uh, Patrick Valance are household mm. names now, you know, and cult yeah. figures in some quarters. Yeah. Would you like to have seen more, more women at, at the oh. forefront of this? Undeniably, you know, I, I think um, some of these things, if we think about it, they can take a while to solve, can't they? I, I think of, as an example, myself in um, political life. I came to it very late because it was around having, having confidence. But we need, to, we absolutely have to be encouraging more, more young, young people to get involved in science. I did uh, physics and maths when I, I did my uh, O-Loves many, 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 many years ago. But it just didn't seem as though I should be going into a scientific role. And we really need to be engaged and and doing that and that that is the, the government saying you know we're talking about getting apprenticeships um really uh, I, I don't even know if you saw this week but um the space agency that they're, they're advertising for astronauts and there must be some young women out there who want to apply for that role but sadly i'm too old otherwise i'd love to go Well, we've come to the end of this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. Listen to my Times Radio show every Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. Uh, you can listen on DAB Radio, on your smart speaker. Get the Times Radio app. You can also listen to the Red Box Podcast of the Times Radio app as well. And if you want to read about the stories that we've been talking about, then you need a Times subscription. To get that, go to times.radio forward slash subscribe. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.